This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Look at that. It is Friday again. And since it's noon, why don't we jump right into our weekly news recap? We've got so many stories to sort through. To swear the oath of office of governor, please welcome Governor J.B. Pritzker. Illinois General Assembly is officially underway. Illinois lawmakers approved a measure that increases protections for abortion rights and gender-affirming health care. Chicago area drivers are dealing with the most congested roads in America. Assault-style weapons are officially illegal now in Illinois. Here to help us make sense of it all is Dan Petrella, state government reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Great to have you back, Dan. Glad to be back. Also with us, Brandon Pope, host of On the Block on WCIU Channel 26 and host of season four of WBEZ's Making Podcast. Brandon, welcome back. Good to be here. And Alex Nitkin, reporter for the Illinois Answers Project at the Better Government Association. Welcome, Alex. Thanks so much. Happy Friday. And I want to give a special shout out to the folks who are watching us break down the week's news live right now on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. You can also watch the live stream on Reset's Facebook page. Brandon's a little excited there. (laughs) When I see a camera, I just get really, really geeky about it. All right, let's jump in. And I'm looking at you, Dan, because it's been a busy week for Democrats in Springfield. The governor gave his inaugural speech. There were festivities on Monday. Then lawmakers quickly passed several bills in the final days of the legislative session. We now have an assault weapons ban in Illinois. So give us the details of that. That's right. It took effect immediately on Tuesday night with the governor's signature, and um, it bans a whole host of weapons. I think there are about um, 60 or so specific types of weapons that are listed in the new law, along with characteristics um, that fit this definition that they've created of assault weapons. Um, It also bans uh, magazines that hold more than 12 uh, rounds of ammunition for rifles and shotguns or uh, more than 15 rounds for handguns. Um, and, uh, you know, immediately with the governor's signature, gun shops across Illinois are no longer allowed to sell these items. Um, the Illinois State Police are standing up a system where um, people who have a firearm owner's identification card will need to um, register guns that they owned before the ban went into effect, and they'll have to do that by, by the start of next year. Well, Republican legislators and dozens of suburban and downstate sheriffs have made their opposition clear. Southern Illinois Representative Blaine Willauer says... He will not comply with the law. Let's listen. Uh, a lot of you guys over there despise our founders, and you casually cast aside the principles that this country was founded on. But our founding fathers, they, they knew what they were doing. See, they had experienced the tyranny of the majority, and they vowed that that was never going to happen in our country. Brandon, Alex, your thoughts on whether this ban can be enforced? I think that's the big question going forward, and it's something that repeatedly came up on the floor of uh, the legislature. I think one of the most memorable parts was um, Darren Bailey, senator outgoing or now former senator Darren Bailey from from downstate, who, uh, as we know, was the Republican nominee for governor last year. He basically said, you know, come and take it. He said, I and millions of other gun owners in Illinois will not comply with this law. Um, Bold words. Honestly, he might be right. The question really at this point is what can um, the administration and law enforcement do to enforce it, especially if, as we just heard, a lot of local law enforcement agencies around the state are not so keen on enforcing it. Um, Interestingly, uh, Senator Senate President Don Harmon, in his sort of closing remarks, he basically said, well, we'll see you in court. Um, Basically, on the defensive side, you know, for all of the 
supposedly many lawsuits that are going to come through and also, you know, they're going to do their best. I think that was a preview. I think it really was. This yeah. is, is going to be contentious for a long time and it's going to get litigated for a long time because it is a complicated issue and it is something that not a lot of states have been able to pull off. Um, it's still going to have to be written whether Illinois can reach the finish line with this. Yeah. Well, Dan, you spoke to a gun shop owner this week. So what is their reaction to this? Um, the ones that we spoke with are, are, you know, pretty much playing it safe. They don't want to run afoul of this new law. They're still trying to understand exactly what the restrictions on them are. Um, you know, there are questions about being able to repair um, grandfathered weapons. You know, if somebody comes in yeah. and needs a new part for their weapon that they still legally own because mm-hmm. um, they owned it before the ban, like, can they do that? That sort of thing. So they're they're pouring over it as well. Um, working with their lawyers, but also I think some of them talking to their lawyers about bringing lawsuits. Those will probably start coming, I would think, as early as, as next week. Yeah, I was going to say, are they planning to file right away? Yeah, I, I would assume, you know, by, by next week or, or the week after, we'll see some of these things start to get filed. And there really is, I mean, a very open question based on Supreme Court recent rulings. I mean, Illinois is the ninth state to pass one of these so far. They've withstood legal challenges, but the U.S. Supreme Court um, last summer threw out New York's concealed carry law and raised questions about other restrictions um, in that ruling. So like like Brandon said, this is going to be contentious and it's going to go on for for quite a while, I think. Well, I want to turn to another new law. Democrats passed uh, a bill expanding protections for abortions and gender affirming care. What does this new law do, Dan? Um, It does a lot of things. And actually, Governor Pritzker, I think just as I was on my way over here, was uh, um, at the new state of Illinois building on West Monroe signing it into law. Um, Okay. Um, allows uh, practitioners like advanced practice registered nurses and physician assistants to perform um, abortion procedures that don't require general anesthesia. Um, a big part of it as well is protecting providers and patients from restrictive laws in other states. So, for example, if um, a doctor who has a license in Missouri and in Illinois loses their license in Missouri because they perform a procedure that is banned there, they would not automatically lose their license in Illinois. Um, it also is allowing practitioners from other states to come to Illinois and get Mm -hmm. licensed more quickly. Um, And so it's just a lot of um, trying to, you know, shield people sort of from these laws that have been passed either in the lead up to or the wake of the Dobbs decision last summer and to um, deal with the influx of patients from other states that states that providers across Illinois have been seeing. Really cementing that idea that we are the safe haven when it comes to this this topic. That's right. Yeah. The House and Senate also passed a bill requiring mandatory paid time off for all Illinois employees. What do we know? And why is that a big deal? Yeah, it's um, it will be for all employers and it's uh, five days a week, basically 40 hours of paid leave um, that people will start earning as soon as they um, as they start their job. And um you know, I think we saw during the pandemic it was a big issue, especially with frontline workers um, not being able to take time off when they got sick uh, because they wouldn't be paid. And, you know, this was really, you know, an issue that gets talked a lot about in Springfield, but I hadn't seen any uh, real movement on it in the last couple of years. And then it sort of came up out of nowhere in the last couple of days of the lame duck session earlier this week. Some comments from our friends online regarding the assault weapons ban. Shamrock Bloom says it's about time. Those guns should not be in the hands of private citizens. And Paige Smith says, as a Chicago resident, I'm grateful for a law that removes and restricts gun violence. Shootings and mass shootings are regularly in our community. All right. uh, A whole new group of lawmakers were sworn into office on Wednesday. That includes new Illinois House Minority Leader Tony McCombie. The Northwest Illinois representative replaces longtime Republican leader Jim Durkin. And here is what she had to say on Wednesday. 
Our system of checks and balances between our co-equal branches of government is unbalanced and unhealthy for us all. Republicans, Democrats, and independents. So I ask you, Speaker Welch, don't be afraid. Bring us to the table. We are problem solvers, so use our knowledge, benefit from our talents, and hear our hearts. Let us show you that any preconceived notions about Republicans is false. What do you think, Alex? Is House Speaker Welch going to bring Republicans to the table? Only if he wants to. And the supermajority now padded into a super-duper majority last November means that um, Democrats in the General Assembly and especially in the House can really choose to involve Republicans or just not, as they have in a lot of cases in most of the legislation that we've talked about so far. I do think that it is going to come down to the um, individual legislator and and Republican legislator and how much they're willing to really work across the aisle. You know, there are some more sort of moderates or or, uh, collaborative, I would say, maybe legislators like the retiring or now retired um, Representative Mark Batnick, who I think had been recognized as someone who had had a real um, hand in bipartisan legislation. But then you also have folks like the aforementioned Darren Bailey, who was was not as much of a uh, bridge builder, let's say. So I think it might come down to the individuals, and it'll certainly also come down to now leader McCombie to see how much um, she wants to mm-hmm. join in sort of Democratic-led initiatives or whether it will be better for herself and her members to just sort of resist as, as a part of a messaging campaign. What do you think, Brandon? Are we in a new era of bipartisan cooperation? Ooh, I don't, it might be a little soon to say new era okay. of bipartisanship, but it's tough to be optimistic about bipartisanship on any level of government in, in this state right now. Um, but I think that's what ultimately voters want. That's ultimately what people want is results. That's how results get done. Um, But the Democrats are in a position, do they really have to statewide? Um, So it's going to be interesting to watch. But I would not bet on it. (laughs) (laughs) Just just given the trends. Just given the trends. Yeah. Well, Democrats have had a long super majority in the legislature. They don't need Republican votes to pass legislation. Will Republicans continue to be sidelined then, Dan? I think so. You know, it's always good politics to have bipartisan support for, for efforts if you can. But um, I don't think the Democrats who now control, you know, the House by an even wider margin still have a supermajority in the Senate. They have a second term governor now. They control all the other statewide offices, the state Supreme Court. I don't think they're going to um, let interest in bipartisanship just for the sake of bipartisanship get in the way of them getting things done that they want to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, see the election results in November as as a mandate. Um, and I think, you know, they're going to continue pushing for our Democratic priorities. And I think, you know, we may even see a more polarized legislature because um, a lot of the more um, moderate Republicans are no longer uh, in the legislature in this new term. And even some uh, moderate Democrats have have been replaced by more progressive members. So it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. Who are some of the other new legislators that got sworn in this week? Oh, there are, there are tons of them. Um, you know, there were a couple really interesting ones that a colleague of mine, um, Jake Sheridan, wrote a story about a couple 23-year-olds in the House, uh, Nabella yeah, Saeed. Gen Z is representing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> N- Nabella Saeed from um, the Northwest Suburbs, who uh, unseated a Republican state rep in November, and then uh guy named, uh, I almost said kid, but he's not a kid, uh, named uh, Brad Fritz, who is from um, Western Illinois, who replaces uh, Tom Demmer, who was the Republican nominee for um, state treasurer in November. 
This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Dan Petrella of the Chicago Tribune, Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association, and Brandon Pope, who's host of On the Block, airing on WCIU Channel 26. A reminder, you can watch the weekly news recap live on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. You can also leave us comments or questions. Talk to us in that YouTube chat box, and I may just read what you have to say about these stories on air, like Chicago 675, who says the abortion protection bill is going to help JB when he runs for president on the national stage. Mm. Mm. Uh, he might. <laughs> he might of, run. <laughs> speaking of JB, yeah, the governor delivered the inaugural address for his second term. Anything stand out for each of you? Well, you know, I was hoping to hear, I had written a story um, before the inauguration about how sort of his second term agenda was was not really super clear, and I still don't feel like um, he has a, a nearly as robust agenda going into the second term as he did in the first. Um, one thing that was new was uh, his call for a an amendment to the state constitution that would protect would further protect abortion rights in Illinois, already protected under state law, but enshrining it in the constitution would make those even more uh, ironclad. Yeah. Did you watch, Alex, Brandon? Uh, I saw recaps. I saw some clips. I think that maybe the most notable standout part of it to me was his promise for, I think, universal pre-K. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, That was a pretty bold promise. I mean, I don't think that we've seen that rolled out statewide. Free tuition. Really anywhere. Yeah, free tuition for, you know, kind of on a limited scale for people who qualify. Yeah. Um, It seemed like he was carrying in this this idea that because the state has had surpluses and be, been able to operate such an expansive kind of government and expansive safety net the last couple of years, that that was something that the state is going to be able to continue or expand further. And we have to remember that um, the deadline for ARPA money spending is uh, coming up in a couple of years. And also um, pensions kind of stopped performing as well as they did and a lot of other state assets did in this past year. And so I think that the the state government's fiscal salad days are, are probably coming to an end, and he's going to be faced with some tough choices again. Yeah. Interestingly, one thing he did not mention was um, a second stab at a constitutional amendment for a graduated income tax. Uh, some folks were speculating yeah. as to whether yeah. maybe would he try again using some other kind of rules or language or better messaging, but no sign of that yet. And he's pretty much um, ruled that out for now. I mean, mm-hmm. as you say, if if uh, the economy starts to tank and and these surpluses turn into big deficits again, he could change his tune on that. Yeah. But And the, pre, the preschool thing, back to that just quickly, you know, that's an idea that has been floating around in some way, shape, or form since Rod Blagojevich was governor, years, if yeah. not before. So the, I think the devil there is really in the details of what you mean by universal and also how they're going to pay for it, which they have not provided any, any details. We'll have to stay tuned. Absolutely. I think the big takeaway for me, it wasn't a policy. It was his fire Pritzker joke. He talked about how <laughs> he sees all these fire Pritzker signs and his his kids tell him, well, fire usually is a good thing, right? Fire emojis. So he took it as a, as a good thing. So <laughs> he, he's got that bravado and confidence of a guy that just won uh, pretty big. Yeah. I mean, speaking of confidence, uh, let's talk about that inaugural ball in Springfield. Bruno Mars. Who would have thought? Bruno Mars <laughs> so and J.B. Pritzker. I wasn't, I wasn't putting that together. Did not see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he got the money for him, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right. He could pretty much book anyone, anyone he wants. Um, uh, before we take a pause, I want to steer the conversation away from politics for a moment. Maybe you guys heard, but Chicago is number one. Yay! But unfortunately, it's not exactly the honor we want. <laughs> Why am I the only one cheering? Right. right. <laughs> because you know something's coming. Brandon, dun, dun, dun. a report came out telling commuters what they already know. 
that, this was this was a weird report to me because I was like, I, I don't think I know it. They said that Chicago is the most congested city in North America, I was traffic shocked. wise. I was a little shocked. If you've been to L.A., if you've been to New York, Atlanta, even Atlanta, Texas. Te- yeah, like. Uh, hello? That, that's the congestion capitals to me. They said Chicago's number one. It's this, uh, this uh, site called Enrix. Um, they said that it cost drivers an extra $300 in gas this year, that we racked up the most lost hours driving than any other North American city. Uh, the second was Boston. The third was New York. Um, and they cited large increases from pre-pandemic and during the pandemic by like 7%. Um, in morning and afternoon commute traffic. Yeah. I, 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 I'm a little skeptical of this report, but, you know, if they say so. I'm also not a driver in the city. So, well, you know, you know who also doesn't have to worry about this report? Alex. Because I remember you at least once biking into the recap. <laughs> yeah. You know, you I, bike, I bike when I can. Um, in January, it can be a little harder. Uh, my oh. car is currently sitting in the Navy Pier parking garage and not excited about uh, the traffic when, when I get out. But um, <laughs> I was explicitly told by the Illinois Department of Transportation that rebuilding the Jane Byrne Interchange was going to fix all our traffic. So, mm. And now it's open, so we'll see. Right? Yeah. All you had to do is add more lanes, just like they did in, uh, you know, have in Texas and LA. So and many lanes. <laughs> that is Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association, Brandon Pope with WCIU Channel 26, and Dan Petrella with the Chicago Tribune. They're going to stick around, and we hope that you do too. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, back now with more Reset and more of our weekly news recap, which, by the way, you can watch right now on WBEZ's YouTube page or on the Reset Facebook page. Speaking of social media, shameless plug, I just wanted to let you know that your favorite radio show is now on TikTok. Yeah. So if you're there, too, give us a follow later on at WBEZ underscore Reset. Okay. Wow. All right. Let's jump back into the news. A 16th Chicago alderman will not seek another term. The Southern Poverty Law Center wants a Chicago police officer fired for his alleged ties to the Proud Boys. Chicago principals could soon have a seat at their own bargaining table. All flights grounded nationwide. The first time that's happened since 9-11. In an email, Lightfoot's campaign asked teachers to encourage their students to volunteer for her campaign. Our panel today is Dan Petrella, state government reporter for the Chicago Tribune, Brandon Pope, host of On the Block on WCIU Channel 26 and host of season four of WBEZ's Making Podcast, and Alex Nitkin, reporter for the Illinois Answers Project at the Better Government Association. All right, Alex, Mayor Lightfoot's campaign has come under criticism this week for reaching out to Chicago public school teachers as well as city college instructors. This is a story that WTTW's Heather Sharon broke. What did she find out? She found some teachers in Chicago public schools who had gotten this email from uh, someone who identified herself and who identifies herself as a um, deputy campaign manager for Lightfoot for Chicago saying, hey, just so you know, here's this great opportunity for some of your students. If they're looking for something to do in their their off time, they can volunteer to reelect our great mayor, work for the Lightfoot for Chicago campaign. And guess what? They can even earn some class credit if they do so. Um, I think that some of them looked at that and they were like, oh, what is this? Uh, yeah, I, it got to, to Heather and, they, and she found out and, and wrote about it. And I think that um, half of the story was Lightfoot's three successive statements kind of changing her posture in response to it from yes. – this is completely fine. I don't know what you're all so upset about. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Um, the second one being, um, okay, out of an abundance of caution, we're gonna we're gonna stop our uh, uh, campaign from doing this. And the third being, 
okay, we recognize this is wrong and we're, we're going to stop it. Um, I think that it is a valid question, sort of what's the big deal about this? They're just reaching out and, and asking if students want to volunteer and, and giving them the opportunity. I think that you have to remember the really deep and sort of toxic and endemic legacy of patronage in Chicago that the way that it really used to work is that incumbents would use all of the levers of government to advance their own political means and it would entrench people in power and, and create a kind of unfair system. And it's on, only been through decades and decades of, of cultural change and multiple federal consent decrees that that has been rooted out. And so you can see why a lot of people's hackles went up when yeah. the mayor, who is essentially you know their boss because she appoints all of the members still of the Board of Education and, and picks the CEO, um, we used government means and used government email addresses to say, hey, you can work for my campaign and help get me reelected. Um, there can be a sense of maybe intimidation, like, well, this is someone who I'm working for. Will there maybe be repercussions if, if I don't? Um, I'm sure that the mayor would, would wave that away as, as ridiculous. She had a um, press conference yesterday, and, and credit to her, she immediately sort of called the media availability and answered yeah. lots of questions from reporters about this. Um, and she very confidently and repeatedly said this was just a one-off incident um, from this deputy campaign manager who she keep, kept referring to as a young staffer. Okay. Um, a young staffer who clearly didn't know any better um, mm. and uh, didn't coordinate it with anyone, didn't coordinate with CPS. Of course, the big question now is if – she knew that she could offer credit uh, for campaign activity. How could she not have coordinated with CPS? How could she not have coordinated that with That is a good question. Because she has no real power naturally to just give course credit willy-nilly, right? Right. I mean, that's the, the takeaway from this and what Lightfoot was asked about it and said, well, I wasn't really involved in those low-level discussions. I'm also the mayor. I'm too busy for that kind of stuff. But also in the next breath, she was able to very confidently say – there was absolutely no coordination. This was a completely one-off thing. Um, we're going to have to save that tape because literally I think as sh that press conference was happening, this a little bit more has been coming out in, in drips. Um, with the City College's uh, incident that you mentioned, apparently in August, someone – I'm not – it's not clear if it was the same person but also reached out to City College's offering a similar – you know, kind of opportunity for course credit, city colleges. So this know, has happened before. It has happened before. Yeah. City colleges rejected it and, and reported it and threw it away and asked the campaign not to do that anymore. So at that point, it becomes a systemic issue. Why wasn't it stopped? Yeah. Well, our folks on YouTube are chiming in. Chicago 675 says, when I first saw a tweet about the Lightfoot CPS email from a CPS teacher, I thought it was fake news. I was like, no way. And... Uh, hmm. They say Lightfoot is in trouble. Any thoughts there, Brandon, Dan? Is this unethical, offering students class credit for volunteering on her campaign? I don't know if I'm at liberty to, to you know, give whether it's ethical or not. I know the CPS Code of Ethics, though, this was in violation of that, of campaigns using teacher emails, cps.edu emails to do campaign business and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's against that code of ethics for sure. And you got the ACLU looking into it right now and uh, CPS Watchdog looking into it. So those questions will be, you know, determined for sure. But it's definitely icky. I mean, you know, it, it definitely this dangling this carrot of class credit. You know, if I'm a student who's struggling in math like I, I was, 
yeah, I, yeah, sure, I'll work for your campaign <laughs> if it means I get some credit out of it. Like, uh, for sure, it, 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 it feels weird. And so, it, this is a mayor who ran on doing things differently than the Chicago political way. Bringing in the light was the slogan. Um, so for her to say, well, this is the way it's always been done. It, it just counteracts what you ran on in that first campaign and kind of rehits upon the critique people have of her and her time in office that she just didn't f- fulfill her campaign mm-hmm. uh, originally. So uh, I, I think that's why it, it does matter. It's easy to kind of be like, eh, it's some emails. But, you know, it points to what her values are, how things are actually run within uh, her department. Well, not to mention that, but just the politics, setting aside the ethical questions for a moment, yeah. the politics of it are kind of crazy because – the Chicago Teachers Union has been like her largest political nemesis during her years in office right. and going through members of the Chicago Teachers Union to offer their students this opportunity to work on her campaign is just like it seems like a bad yeah. idea. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> like you had to know if you were if you were sending that through members of the CTU that it was going to get out and it was going to not look it good. It was for not your going campaign. to be good for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Okay, let's turn to city council. Another alderman has announced that he is calling it quits. Alex, why is twenty six word alderman Roberto Maldonado not running for re election? I mean, he basically said that it was it was time. Honestly, this was something that folks were speculating was going to happen. Okay. He was part of this sort of older guard. You know, he's been around for a, a long, long time. He originally came into Chicago politics through the the Harold Washington campaign in 1983, originally from from Puerto Rico, um, and he came up as a real ally of um, then. Alderman turned Congressman Luis Gutierrez, uh, who was elected in 1985 as a 26th Ward Alderman there in Humboldt Park on the northwest side. Um, he uh, was a Cook County commissioner um, up until uh, for, I think, three terms of more than a decade. Up until 2009, he was appointed to the city council by Richard J. Daley. And so this is another someone else with a, a wealth of experience who's going to um, be departing from the city council. Again, there was some speculation that he was going to be leaving. Um, there was, I think that speculation led to the fact that he is in a pretty crowded race for re-election. There are a, a good handful of people running in that race, mm-hmm. um, including Angie Gonzalez Rodriguez, who who um, kind of ousted him in an upset in the committee, the Democratic Party committee person race a couple of years ago, and also uh, DJ Julian Jumpin Perez, who's sort of a Chicago celebrity, is yes, running there. That's right. So it was a little surprising that um, he, Roberto Maldonado, the alderman, went ahead and collected all these signatures, um, went through the process, and then withdrew during the signature challenge process. Maybe he was worried that he wouldn't withstand a challenge or maybe he just sort of decided, no, it's it's time. Yeah. Um, it also does mean that the mayor is going to be losing another, I would call, relative ally in the city council. Um, he told uh, in sort of his exit interview, he told Fran Spielman at the Sun-Times that he would, would support um, the mayor for re-election. Um, and he is also someone who has been, on the other hand, pretty resistant to some of the new kind of innovative housing policies that are being tried out by different aldermen on the the northwest side, things like ADUs and coach houses and demolition fees. Um, Roberto Maldonado uh, has has been sort of resistant. Um, So we'll see who, you know, who replaces him and what they want to do. It'll be interesting. Also in city council, the chair of the Public Safety Committee called for the firing of a police officer who has connections to the extremist group Proud Boys. Quickly give us the latest on that one, Alex. Yeah, this is Chicago Police uh, Officer Robert Baker or, or Backer Bacher. Bacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. He. This is something that 
dates back to, I think, May 2020 when actually Vice News broke uh, a story about um, he was found to be this officer organizing some kind of meetup of members of the Proud Boys, which is a, you know, they, I think they describe themselves as like a Western chauvinist group, which basically means I interpret to mean, you know, white supremacist and misogynistic and, and homophobic, which I think they have also borne Pretty that much. out through their own activities. <laughs> yeah. um, he was organizing uh, organizing a meetup and in communication with them. Um, and really since then, there's been this whole back and forth through process through CPD internal affairs over what to do with him. He was under uh, investigation for what's called conduct unbecoming violations. He was also entirely separately from that um, investigated for uh, aggravated sexual assault. So yeah. a very serious um, allegation of an entirely different kind. Um, but after all of this process and everything and, and public outcry and hubbub, the impact is that he was given a 120-day suspension um, that he is currently serving and yeah. supposedly going to be back on the streets in a number of weeks. And so that's why um, Alderman Taliaferro was was having this community meeting because a lot of people are, um, I think, understandably yeah. saying, well, this guy is going to be policing our streets really soon. He's going to be back on the street. How does this not hamper our trust in the police department? Yeah. Brandon, do you think that the police superintendent, David Brown, is he going to come under more community pressure to get rid of this guy? Yeah, well, I, I think I think there's absolutely going to be community pressure, but I think he's also he may have his hands tied a little bit because they reached some sort of agreement with him for suspension and not firing. And I'm not sure what the details in particular are of that agreement. I'm not sure we found the details yet of that agreement, but I'm wondering where that agreement, what that if that's holding up anything, because it, it, it would seem pretty cut and dry. If you have an, an officer linked to these extremist groups that you would just you just cut ties from there. Yeah. He's in chats. He's going to the barbecues and all that type of stuff. You, you'd think so. But Lightfoot's defended it. Uh, David Brown, uh, you know, doubled down a little bit and they've struck this agreement with there. So I'm wondering what kind of agreement was it? Was it an NDA? Was it something that was legally binding? I think that needs to be dug into a little more to really understand if they can actually fire him. Because that, that, I think that's the big question. Are they actually able to at this point with what they've already put in place? Well, uh, other city council drama that I, I got to get into because we learned the daughter of 18th Ward Alderman Derek Curtis suffered an accidental gunshot wound during oh. a gun safety class that he was teaching last week. This is coming after the alderman accidentally shot himself in October. What's, what's going on here, Alex? I mean, you pretty much said it. He, uh, he was wow. cleaning a gun. He accidentally shot himself. He had to have a surgery on his hand. It so he shot himself in, in October, and now his daughter shot herself. So there are conflicting reports at this point whether he accidentally shot his daughter or whether his uh, her brother accidentally shot her. It's confusing. It's it's unfortunate. It's bizarre. It's he was teaching a gun safety class and and someone was handing her a gun and it it went off. Um, okay, I don't sounds know, like man. he should be taking a gun safety class rather than yeah, teaching perhaps one. the whole family. Yeah. Oh boy, I don't know what to take away from this other than just if you're going to own a gun, you know. Be safe. Be safe. <laughs> yeah, and keep um, it in a safe place, too. And go to safe gun safety classes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, skipping around here due to time, um, oh, Shamrock Bloom chimes in on YouTube and says, this story is nuts. 
All right. Yeah. Um, so, Dan, Chicago uh, principals, they're also organizing right now. Um, let's talk about unions for a little bit because um, there's a new bill that could allow principals to organize. Is that right? That's right. Um, it hasn't made it. Uh, it hasn't. The governor has not signed it yet, but um, it passed during the, the lame duck legislative session. Um, another issue that's been on the table for a couple of years that they got through there um, before the the General Assembly turned over to the, the new um, legislators um, it's interesting. This one was actually supported by the mayor's office and by CPS, and I think largely because um, there is a no strike provision in the bill that mm-hmm. wouldn't allow uh, the principals to to go on strike. Um, and you know, the the principal group itself said we sought that no strike provision. That wasn't something that we had to compromise on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be interesting to see sort of what the effect of of them being able to unionize is. And, and yeah, how and it's, it it's noteworthy because, I mean, historically, principals have been viewed as managers, right? And we know that, you know, across occupations, usually as a manager, you can't, you're not eligible for union membership. So it will be interesting to see how this works. Now they're categorized as supervisors. Hmm. So yeah. uh, quickly switching gears before we take a pause here, Brandon, more than 500 flights at O'Hare and Midway were grounded on Wednesday morning. This was because of some computer issues. It's affected my mom, too, who was traveling on that morning. What happened? What a headache. I think it just pointed to how outdated the FAA's flight system is. So the way the industry, the, the, the agencies explained it, you know, Tuesday afternoon, they thought that they had this fixed. It's linked back to a corrupted data file of some sort. Um, and then their backup system also had some of that bad data. And so that all just created this, like, ripple effect that impacted not just Southwest Airlines, not just American Airlines, everybody. And the tough part about it, too, is, like, they there are planes that were actually <laughs> in the air and planes that – had they had to figure out where are we going to land these planes because of how many cancellations and drops there were. Uh, it's extremely unusual. There were 10,000 flights in total delay just on Wednesday alone. Um, and this old system, according to the FAA, it goes back all the way to the 60s. Um, they've been they say they've been in the process of trying to modernize the challenge, like most government agencies funding. And getting the funding to do that. It's not like just upgrading our phones with iOS. Right. right? It, <laughs> so it not. takes a little bit more on the back end. And so uh, it really just spotlights how uh, how fragile the flight technology infrastructure is in this country and outdated and unfortunately left a lot of people in a bind. What a ripple effect. Well, I'm going to leave us with a little good news to make you all smile. The Lincoln Park Zoo issued an exciting birth announcement this week. Triplets for one of the zoo's lions. So congratulations to Zari and her partner Jabari. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, Dan's like, "Mm mm-hmm. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just joining us, it is our weekly news recap. We've been getting updates on what's been happening in Springfield, City Council, the airports, even the Lincoln Park Zoo. With me are three world-class local journalists, Dan Petrella, Alex Nitkin, and Brandon Pope. All right, I'm going to devote a little bit of time to football. It was a disappointing season for the Bears with a record number of losses. So time to look ahead, right? Yeah, they sucked. But... We won the number one overall pick. First time since 1947, only the second, third time in franchise history. Great. And it comes at a great time because for this draft, the Bears have a lot of draft capital. That number one overall pick is coming at a time when 
There are like two or three great quarterbacks out there to be drafted. We already have our quarterback in Justin Fields, and Ryan Poles has said we're going to stick with Justin Fields. So that means that number one pick can be traded for more picks. And there's a new CEO and president. A new CEO and president, uh, Kevin Kevin Warren. Warren. Yes, he's the former Big Ten commissioner. He was the first black commissioner of any Power Five uh, college football conference. Now he becomes the first ever black president and CEO of the Chicago Bears, replacing Ted Phillips. Now the Bears have a black president, black GM, black quarterback. They also have a black woman in the hiring office and they're diverse. Exactly. And and their DNI named Tanisha Wade, who helps make these hiring decisions. So they've really been stepping up on the DNI side. It is a big deal. I don't we don't talk enough about Tanisha. She's doing an amazing job over there. With the Bears, but he lives in the area, so this is not a big shift for him. Um, he's familiar with football. He helped build uh, the Vikings' new stadium, so he knows the NFC North. Um, so, hey, welcome to the Bears, and we're going to see what this regime has in place. Yeah, and Dan, there's a bill in Springfield that could have implications for the Bears. Da Bears. I've been practicing. Oh my gosh, I did it wrong. It, did, it, it didn't feel authentic. I did but it wrong. It's not a hard I'm S so at the end. We'll work on it. To my friends on YouTube, I'm sorry, I tried. I literally was working. Da Bears. Uh-uh. Oh, gosh. Yes. All right. Anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to attempt for, for fear of embarrassing myself. My, my producers are like, after all that practice. Uh, but anyway, the, the, this bill could have implications for the football team and a possible move to the Burbs. That's right. Da Burbs. <laughs> there you go. Um, so there is a bill that passed, actually part of a package of a couple different bills, but um, the governor had been pushing for this um, they're calling it a large business attraction fund, or they've referred to it as a deal closing fund, um, sort of a pool of money that they can use when negotiating with big businesses to help attract them to Illinois. And um, they put a provision into the legislation implementing this fund saying that it can't go to any professional sports team that is looking to relocate from one part of the state to another part of the state. So um, that's the Springfield way of saying, sorry, Bears, you're not getting any of this money. Um <laughs> You know, they, there are maybe other ways that they could try and get some money out of the state. They could seek their own legislation. But the governor, the legislature have been very cool to the idea of, of helping the Bears with this move. Yeah. <clears throat> They're going yeah. to the Burbs, y'all. Be ready. They're going to the Burbs. Yeah. OK, well, let's jump to two quick college football stories. Chicago State University is considering adding a football team. Where are they in that process, Brandon? So they launched an exploratory committee and they say that means they're going to gather students, faculty, stakeholders, whoever those are. Um, to figure out whether this is even feasible. The the reasoning that they're thinking about football is their enrollment is less than 3,000. Uh, they've been having enrollment issues for a long time, but the pandemic has not helped them at all, and they think that bringing football here, Division One football, could help. This would be the first D1 football program in Chicago since 1939 when University of Chicago played football in the Big Ten. Um, but they got to also consider the cost here. Uh, having a football team costs a lot of money. Keeping a football team and having a winning football team costs a lot of money. Where are they going to play? Uh, are you going to build a whole new stadium? Will it be covered? Will you let CPS use it? Lots of things that have to be considered in that exploratory committee we'll be putting together. No timeline yet on when they're going to have their findings, but they have launched that together. Um, and hopefully we're going to see some more answers in the coming months. Yeah. Well, Alex, Northwestern is investigating allegations of hazing in their football program. What do we know? Not a whole lot at this point. Northwestern, you know, to its own credit, uh, started, uh, we found out about this from the university. They found uh, a, they hired an outside attorney to investigate allegations of hazing 
Um, and the Northwestern football team, they've hired um, uh, Maggie Hickey, who, if that name sounds familiar, it's probably because she is the um, compliance administrator for the Chicago Police Department consent decree. Um, and the university and the, the team are going to support the investigation and, and see what they can find. But, yeah, it's an unsettling turn of events for uh, for my Northwestern Wildcats. Not the first hazing allegations they've had either, I believe. This has been a, an ongoing issue. So. Oh, wow. Not good. No. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Dan Petrella of the Chicago, Chicago Tribune, Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association, and Brandon Pope, who's host of On the Block, airing on WCIU Channel 26. Now, this week, we are doing something a little bit different, folks. Oh. we got a special guest that's going to be joining us on the recap. Okay. Okay. Let's go. So you all might have heard of the Green Comet mm-hmm. that is supposed to be passing by the Earth today, but... I don't think any of us have covered it, right? No, no. no. So we're going to get uh, a mini press conference underway right now. And we're going to have Hunter Miller join us from the Adler Planetarium. Hey, Hunter. How's it going? Hello. So excited to be here today to talk about this uh, celestial event with y'all. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're, you're the right person to, <laughs> to fill us in. Uh, get us up to speed on this comet. What, first of all, what is the current status yeah, so this comet actually just yesterday hit kind of a, an important point, perihelion. So that was its closest um, path of the sun. Um, so pretty much for the, for the next couple of weeks leading up to February 1st, it'll be getting closer and closer to us here on Earth, and presumably because of that getting brighter and brighter in the sky. What's the best time to see it? Ooh, so comets are kind of interesting. Um, and unlike a lot of other celestial events that are very time-sensitive, this one we've actually got a few weeks to take a look at it. Um, so there will be a couple of things that will, like, uh, keep us from observing here in Chicago, one of them being light pollution. But, of course, you can get out to dark sites um, like the Forest Preserve District of Cook County that have really great dark sites here in Chicago or further outside of the city at other parks. Another one we'll deal with right now um, during this time of year is, honestly, cloud coverage. I think a couple of minutes ago you were talking about the sort of weather statuses right now. So the big thing to look for is really just a clear day in the next few weeks. Um, Any time leading all the way up to, like, the first or second week of February will be a great time to look at the comet. Um, I know that we're supposed to have clear skies tonight leading into tomorrow morning. So um, I know some people from the planetarium are going to be trying to check it out uh, uh, tomorrow morning at, like, 5 a.m. 5 a.m. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was about to volunteer to join you, Hunter, but you lost me at 5 a.m. early this time around. Fortunately, as we get later into it, and actually as it gets brighter and much easier to see, um, it'll be uh, up in the high in the sky earlier in the night. Um, so leading into like the first week of February, it's probably the best time to observe it. Okay. It'll be at its brightest point as it gets uh, close to the Earth, and it will also uh, be up at a much more reasonable time, you know, like 8, 9 o'clock at night. That's a nice time to go out and observe. Yeah. So this comet's been around, for, it's been hovering around for what, 5,000, 50,000 years, I think I read. Uh, what's taken so yeah, long? So this, <laughs> yeah, so this comet is a kind of comet called a long-period comet. So ones that, like, you might be really familiar with, like, are short-period comets, like Halley's Comet, that comes around pretty frequently, about every 75 years. This kind of comet, these long-period ones, they live way on the outside of the solar system. So they take a really long time to do a full orbit around the sun. So the last time this one um, came close to the Earth is estimated at about at least 10,000 years ago, and um, the closest estimations right now are about 50,000 years ago. So it's been a long time since this one's come around to the Earth. And actually, this time it's coming so close to the sun that it's going to get whipped out really fast from the solar system. And the next time it comes around will be 
um, you know, at least millions of years, if ever. It might end up leaving the, the entire solar system. Oh, wow. Hey, Hunter, this is Alex. Um, how confident are we that this comet will not hit us? <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. So we've got a pretty good idea of the path it'll take. You know, we can, we can look at the gravity and where it's swinging around the sun. The closest it'll get to us is actually about 26 million miles. Um, now, that's pretty close for space terms, but certainly um, okay. no concerns about it uh, getting too Sounds close here to Earth. Won't have to send up Bruce Willis. And- <laughs> 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 I had another question. This is Dan. I was curious how this is going to compare, if anyone remembers, to the, the Hale-Bopp comet in the late 90s in terms of like size and visibility, things like that. <laughs> yeah, so Hale-Bopp was a really incredible comet. That was a, another kind of long period one mm-hmm. that doesn't come around too often. Now, I will say comets are really tough to predict. Um, it's really hard to know how bright they're going to get because it is very dependent on just the interaction between the, the comet and the hot sun as it gets close. Um, it is looking like this one will not be um, nearly as bright as that one was. Hale-Bopp was really a, such a spectacular one that, that showed really large in the sky and was very clear with the naked eye. This one will be a little different. You'll have to get out to a dark sky site to see it with the naked eye, you know, without the aid of binoculars or telescopes. And it'll really be just a small, fuzzy, maybe slightly green point in the sky. Um, with larger telescopes and things like that, you might be able to see a tail behind it. But, yeah, nothing like uh, like the ones that, that happened in the late 90s. Hellbop was just a, a huge one that streaked across the sky and lasted for many, many months. I have a, a serious question now. Why is it green? <laughs> Ooh, great question. Yeah, so everybody's been calling it the green comet, the green comet, right? So that really comes down to sort of um, how comets uh, – what we're seeing when comets come close to the sun. So comets are basically big, dirty snowballs. It's a bunch of, like, leftover dust and rocks and rocks and ice from the solar system's really early formation. Mm. Now, when they're super far out in the solar system, it's really cold out there. They're not getting too much energy from the sun. And so they stay this, this big ice ball. But as they come close to the sun, they get hotter and hotter. Some of this ice begins to melt and eventually evaporate. And it does, goes through this process called outgassing. So it starts releasing all these gases that were stored up in it. And it's those gases that create the color. Um, so they think that in this comet it has a lot of um, diatomic carbon and that that is actually what produces that green color that we're seeing. So barring, you know, a cloudy sky, this thing should be pretty visible here in Chicago? Um, yeah, it will be visible. I will say you'll definitely need to know where to look for. Um, it will be small and pretty faint. So what I would really recommend if you're going to go out and try to see it, one thing with a comet is because it is um, moving, you know, much, much quicker across the sky than things like stars, it will be in a very different location every night. So I really recommend using um, whatever your chosen, like, star-finding app is. Um, some ones that I use would be things like Stellarium or Starry Night, and that'll show you where in the sky it's going to be in relation to some other brighter objects that might be easier to see. I know on February 10th, it will be really close to Mars in the sky, which is a, a really bright, very obvious red point. It might make it easier to um, kind of help navigate it for, for newcomers. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I would definitely make sure to, to really keep an eye on where it is that night so you know which direction to look. That will definitely make it easier to see it. That is Hunter Miller of the Adler Planetarium. Thank you so much, Hunter. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, hopefully all what, everybody gets some good clear skies, gets to uh, yeah. observe this awesome event. Happy sky gazing. Yeah. <laughs> good tip on the apps, too. I know. Thanks for all the questions, guys. That was Dan Petrella of the Chicago Tribune, Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association, and Brandon Pope of WCIU Channel 26. Have a great weekend, guys. Yeah, thank thank you. you. You too.